Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Mystery author Sybil Johnson loves to read and write cosies, the stories that many consider to be on the lighter side of the mystery genre. Firstly, she values them for their sheer escapism, and secondly, because unlike in real life, justice always prevails. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Sybil is talking about why she dropped out of computer programming to become a successful mystery author. But before we hear from Sybil, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available at the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Sybil's website and books, as well as a free ebook and information on how to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Sybil. Hello, Sybil, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Listen, it's great to be here with you. Was there a once upon a time moment when you realized you had to write fiction or your life would somehow be incomplete? And if there was, what was the catalyst to get you going? Well, I never actually thought that I would write fiction. I've always loved reading mysteries and um, other kinds of fiction as well, but I never dawned on me that I would be a writer. But one day, um, towards the end of a programming contract that I have when it was going to end and I didn't really have anything else planned, I woke up with this vision in my head of uh, uh, like a woman who is like 28, 29, finding the body of her painting teacher in her garden. And I thought that would be an interesting story and maybe I should figure out if I can write that. And that's the first time you'd ever had a thought like that. It just popped into your head. Yeah, just popped into my head. (laughs) A lot of people don't act on those popped into their head ideas because, as you would have discovered, then turning around and writing a mystery takes a lot of work. Um, Yes, and that's one of the reasons I actually never thought that I would ever write one is because I thought it would be too hard to plot. Um, and, but you know what? I ended up doing it. It took me 10 or 15 years to get that story, um, done, which is what my first book, Fatal Brushstroke, but, um, it was published eventually. Great, great. Yeah. Now, Aurora, Rory Anderson, the heroine of your series, has got a close resemblance to you in a number of aspects. First of all, she's a computer programmer by trade. And I think that's what, as you say, you did that for 20 years. And also she's a toll painting enthusiast. Now, until I read your book, I actually had never heard of toll painting. And we'll get to that in a moment. But could you tell us about the similarities and differences between your heroine and yourself? I know it's always dangerous to confuse somebody, a a fictional character with a living person. Um, Well, I was a computer programmer for 20 years, and that's what she does. She's a lot younger than I am right now. 
uh, she's six feet tall and I'm not, and I always wanted to be six feet tall. So I figured I would make her six feet tall. Um, let's see. She's a better painter than I am. So if you're going to make somebody a painter, you may as well make them better than you are. And she's adopted and I'm not. Um, uh, and I think she's a lot braver than I am. Yes. Yes. So tell us a little about the toll painting. It, it plays quite a large part in the story. Her mother has an art shop and she she engages in quite a lot of art as we go along. So tell us a bit about that. Well, toll painting or decorative painting now is, is pretty much how it's known now. Um, is uh, has a basis in a lot of folk art from all around the world. And in around the late 60s, the sort of modern version of it emerged. And um, it really its heyday was in the 90s, and it's still going on now. There are still toll painting or decorative painting conventions. Um, I tend to use toll and decorative painting you know, interchangeably because I learned in the early 90s, and that's when toll painting was... Um, Basically, that was the term. Um, basically, really, it's just decorating objects uh, using paint. It's typically acrylic paint, though some some people use oils. And you learn uh, certain strokes that are you know classic things to learn. And you have patterns. So what's really nice about it is that you don't have to come up with your own designs. There is a whole industry of people out there who are great designers and they create patterns and they, um, you can buy patterns and in instructions and, um, and you can use those things, that, techniques that you learn to create something really great. It sounds a weeny bit parallel to a quilting, um, a sort of folk art using manual skills, but in a different sort of material. Would that be a way to think of it? Um, yeah, you could think of it that way. Yeah. Mm, mm. So you mentioned that you took a long time to do the first book. When you did the first book, did you have any idea that it would be turning into a series? You've now done three books. Paint the Town Red was book two, and A Talent for Murder, the one that was just published this year. Um, yeah, I always thought it would be make a good series, so um, that was my intention at the beginning, although um, I didn't necessarily know what the other books were going to be at the time that I wrote the first one. But I did have that in my head. Have you been writing full-time through those years, or have you also still been maintaining a little bit of computer work? Um, pretty much when I first started writing, I was still, um, working part time, but I've been pretty much working full time at writing. Um, still took me 10 or 15 years because there were, there were times and, you know, I had things that I couldn't write for about six months or I, or I was just tired <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of work to learn how to write. And, and, uh, sometimes it can be a little overwhelming. So I took breaks here and there. Um, sure. And who did you um, take as your mentors? Did you did you read books or did you go to workshops or? Um, I took two. Um, uh, sorry, I just got a buzz on my on my computer. I took two online uh, writing courses. First, I started writing by myself because I thought I knew 
how to write a story. Ha, ha, ha. And then as I realized <laughs> as I was going along that maybe I could use some feedback, I took a couple online writing courses. And I like online writing courses because if somebody makes a comment about um, your work, you can um, basically go off and cry in a corner for a couple hours and then come back and, and really take in what they're saying, but you don't have to be staring at them yeah. <laughs> as they're saying these horrible things about what you wrote. Um, I did that, and I also probably read a slew of um, writing books and all kinds of different things, mostly writing mysteries, sometimes a little bit on writing short stories. Sure, and uh, you mentioned that you were a, a keen mystery reader before you began writing mysteries, and I, I noticed just recently you were on a panel with the topic how cozies changed my life. Now, Rory is a it's a cozy mystery series. Perhaps could you tell us a little about why you tend towards the cozy end of the spectrum and have have cozies actually changed your life? Um I like cozies because they're you're generally series and um they're generally in, you know, towns or environments that you want to revisit, so it's nice to have friends to go back to. But probably the primary reason that I like it is they're not, it's not really, uh, it, its emphasis is on solving the crime, and uh, justice always prevails at the end. I mean, that's something that doesn't happen in real life all, all of the time. So... Um, it's nice to, to when all these horrible things are happening in the world and you read the newspaper to have some sort of escape that you go to. Yeah, and that would help to explain that there has been quite an increase in the popularity of cozies as well, well, and mysteries generally. And I think generally people feel that could be because of the escapist element and the fact that right is seen to happen at the end mostly. Right. I mean, I'm really cozy as I think that one of the rules is that it has to happen at the end. It doesn't mean that necessarily someone is um, uh, convicted of a crime or even arrested, but something happens so that um, really justice comes, you know, comes into it. Yeah. Yeah. And now how about the question, how cozy's changed my life? Did they change your life? Well, I'm, yeah, that's all. Actually, that's a hard question. We were, we were talking about that on the panel. Um, well, I've been, I've read them for so long that I don't know if they've really changed my life in a huge way. I just, they, I feel like they've always been part of it ever since I was a kid. So ever since I discovered Agatha Christie in like junior high and Miss Marple. Sure. But I guess that having then graduated to being a writer of them has been a big difference. That's true. That's true. It is very different being a writer versus a, a reader. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how else, what else to say. <laughs> um, one of the often mentioned difficulties with successful mysteries is explaining how your ordinary heroine, the Rory of your um, books, always seems to be coming across dead bodies, you know, tripping over dead bodies, if they're not a detective or a um, police officer whose job it is to investigate these crimes. 
how have you overcome that and has has it been a problem um yeah that's always an issue with my editors and and we're talking about um how important it is to have a reason to investigate a crime in general i'm pretty when i read cozies i i don't really have to have a huge reason for it. A lot of readers do, though. But yeah, you always have to have something that's important. Either the person is accused of the crime, which you know is the, is the first book. But I think you can only use that device once. Um, you can't have people constantly accusing them of crimes. Um, or you know, it's somebody, a friend, or a business, or something has to be that's personal to them um, that makes them want to investigate. So it is, it, it is a challenge a bit. Yes, yeah. And what do readers tell you they like best about your Aurora Anderson series? A lot of people really like the setting, the beach cities. Um, I, I like to use things from, I, I live in a beach city, so I like to use things that happen in the cities around me. As, you know, the, I like to make up um, things that are very similar to that and uh, use them in, in my books because I, I have a fictional town, Vista Beach, but it's really based on the cities of Manhattan Beach, Redondo Beach, and Hermosa Beach here in Southern California. So uh, like in the third book, A Palette for Murder, um, there's a chalk art festival, and that's loosely based on the chalk art festival that happens every year in Redondo Beach. And in... Um, Manhattan Beach, we just had a pumpkin race, which is something that we have every year. People decorate their pumpkins and they put wheels on them and they race them down the hill towards the, the pier. So I'm I'm currently working on a Halloween mystery, so that, uh, there's going to be a pumpkin race in it. Oh, cool. Very cool. We're going to talk a little bit about your setting a little later, but, but that sounds fantastic. I did wonder whether Vista was a real beach. In fact, I googled it, but it did look to me like it might be a, an amalgamation of several beaches. Yes, yeah. So moving away from the specific book focus to a little bit more generally about your career, if there was one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to, of your success, what would it have been? Well, I think this. I think it's persistence. And I think that's true of anything that you do in life is that if you get knocked down, if you really want it, you keep on learning, you keep on uh, figuring out what you did wrong or how things could be changed or if things needed to be changed and to just keep on trying because really I think a lot of people don't accomplish their goals because they aren't they aren't persistent. But also I think that especially in writing, you have to be willing to learn when somebody gives you a critique, you have to decide, first of all, whether or not you're going to take it, but you also have to be willing to take it and say, and look at your work and say, is what they're saying makes sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. Did you, you obviously have gone the traditional publishing route, and probably when you started out, self-publishing wasn't quite as dominant as it is now, but have you ever considered being a self-published author, or are you very happy working in the way that you, you are? 
I'm I'm happy working in the way that I have now, but I would certainly consider it in the future, especially since I do think that self-publishing has changed quite a bit. And I know a number of authors that do both. They self-publish some books and they have traditional publishing with others. So now, I mean, I don't know that I would have considered it many years ago, but it's changed so much that I, I would consider it now. I guess if you were thinking of doing something really different from Aurora Anderson, it it, it might um, make sense. And I was actually thinking about that because I see that you're also a fan of ancient languages and you're actually studying ancient Egyptian and Coptic. And that got me thinking... Is there a historical mystery somewhere there in the background that might emerge someday? I mean, I've actually thought about that a little bit, but I I do have an historical mystery that I would like to write, but it has nothing to do with ancient languages. Um, I'm really fascinated by San Francisco during the gold rush. And so I have an idea for a mystery that takes place in 1850 um, in San Francisco, which is pretty much the height of the California gold rush. So I have an idea for that. Um, as to Coptic and ancient Egyptian, I, you know, I just haven't thought of any ideas yet, but I, you know, I might in, in, in the future. How did you get attracted to learning ancient languages? Because, you know, one thing about them is you're probably never going to find a way to speak them, are you? Well, you know, it's in some ways that's the beauty of them. You don't have to learn how to pronounce them. Um, in fact, like ancient Egyptian, they really don't know how it's it, it was pronounced. They can only make guesses based on Coptic, which is the sort of the last um, trace of ancient Egyptian, and the only it's not only it's only spoken today. It's a liturgical language in the Coptic Christian Churches, Church. So. Yeah. Uh, it, and that's Boharic, I actually, which is a, a different dialect than I know. Um, I know Sahidic, which is a slightly different um, thing, which is what most people who study Egyptology learn. Um, How did you get into that? Well, I used to like to take um, extension courses at UCLA, and I've always found languages interesting and they were offering uh, an ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs um, course and I thought well that would be a lot of fun and that would be really cool I've never you know I've always wondered how you read that and how complicated it is so I took it and they they offered a couple more and from that I actually have a group of friends um, and we now get together on our own Uh, the professor who um taught those courses now lives in Louisiana and we call her via phone and we have uh, every Monday night we get together and we uh, translate um, different texts that she comes uh, up with and it's um, quite fun. Amazing, terrific, yeah. We were talking about Manhattan Beach where you live. If you were going to organize a literary magical mystery tour for for your series, where would you trip advise people to go? Um, certainly driving down the California coast from like Malibu on south. Um, each of the beach cities is a little bit different. So, you know, make a stop in Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach and Redondo Beach, which are all right next to each other. Go down to the Palos Verdes Peninsula, which is south of that, and just keep on going a little into Orange County where you get Huntington Beach and um, all of those cities down there and if you stop at each one you'll discover that even the ones that are right next to each other are quite different in terms of um uh the kind of people who live there and uh, the kinds of um 
events that they have. So if you go at various times of the year, you could, you know, go to the Chalk Art Festival or Hermosa Beach often has. I don't know if they're doing it this year. Because we don't have snow and in wintertime it's actually fairly warm, they uh, they uh, they will bring in snow and they'll have like a snow event. Um, they put something on the on I don't know what they put. They put something on the on the on the streets so that the snow will stay there for like a day or something like that. And and they have uh, a a lot of fun with that. So, and also with decorative painting, there's actually the National Decorative Painting Museum is in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'd have people hop over there so they get a feel for the history of that. Oh, lovely! Have you been there yourself? No, I just found out about it. So it's now on my list of places to go. Oh, great. <laughs> Is there a mystery in your own life which would provide the plot for a book? Well, I'm pretty I'm a pretty ordinary person, so I don't really think so. The only thing I can think of is that actually my mother asked me, my mother who's 95 now, asked me to find out what happened to her grandfather. Um, when she was growing up, he sort of disappeared from her life, and she, no one would ever talk about it. So I did look into that for her. Uh, uh-huh. So that was, that was kind of an interesting story. So, Well, this podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's based around the assumption that we have got larger numbers of readers these days who like to find an author and read a series. Uh, and, and, of course, you're a series author, so I'm sure you appreciate that. Have you yourself been a binge reader either in the past or currently? And if so, who who are the ones you love the most? Um, I do do my share of binge reading. Um, recently, I discovered uh, Emily James does a maple syrup mystery series. And I, I just picked up one of hers and I really enjoyed it so much. And they were really fast, fun reads that I just started reading them one after the other. So that's my most recent Um uh, the League of Literary Ladies series by Kylie Logan. I pretty much, when I found that, there were three series. There were three books in the series already out, so I, you know, did a bit of binge reading there. And I did the same with Laura Di Silverio's um, Mall Cop series, which is uh, quite fun. Um, I I noticed that when I do binge reads, they too tend to be. Co- cozy mysteries because I do read a whole lot of stuff I read a lot of nonfiction. I read um, a lot of different kind of mysteries but my favorites to binge read and pretty much the only ones I do binge read are cozy mysteries and I guess in the past you you probably have been an Agatha Christie reader have you oh yes I have read every one of her books at least once and a few years ago I started reading them in order because in order of when they were published because I thought that would be an interesting thing to do yeah yeah oh that's great Perhaps now circling around from the beginning to where you are today, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, is there anything you would change? No, I don't think there is anything I would change. I mean, I've made mistakes, and but I think they brought me to where I am and to what I have now, and, and I think it's important to learn from those things. Um, the only thing that maybe would be nice is if I could write faster. Um, I tend to be a fairly slow writer, so it would be nice to be able to um, write more because I have so many stories I would I would like to tell. But I do I I have noticed that I am getting faster at writing. It's a lot it's a lot like programming. When you first start to program, you um, tend to need to write down more stuff and think about it a little bit more. And then as you uh, keep on doing it, you um, you get faster at it. So. 
and I guess doing mysteries, you do have to probably do quite a lot of plotting in advance because you've got so many key points in the, the plotting to keep things moving along. Do, tell me how you approach a book. Do you start with quite a detailed outline? I'm sort of a mid between a, a pantser and a plotter. Um, I always know who did it, what the crime is, why they did it, and I always have a list of suspects. And I generally know how the story starts and how it ends. And then I have key points within the story itself that I know I need to get to. And then in between, so I basically, like, I have A, B, C, D, you know, and then S, let's say F is the end. Then I, when I'm writing, I'm writing from A to B. How do I get from A to B and what makes sense? And those things may change as I'm going along, but at least it gives me something to hold on to because I'm not somebody who can just start writing and keep on going without at least knowing somehow where, where I'm trying to get to. So does that mean that when you begin, you often don't actually know who committed the crime? It, it reveals itself during the writing? No, I always know who committed the crime. Um, that, 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 that has never changed um, at all. But maybe how she gets to learn that will change or, um, yeah. or, or some of the events in between. Okay, yeah. yes. So what is next for Sybil, the writer? Have you got some new projects, things in the pipeline? I have I have a contract for three more books in the Aurora Anderson mystery series. So I'm currently working on the fourth one, which is due in a few months. And that's going to be Halloween themed. And then um, all my books take place, take place two months apart. And then I'll be doing a Christmas one and a Valentine's Day one. Oh, amazing. And, and so how long does it take you to write each book? Well, I have a year on the contract, so a year. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a year for each book, not a year for three of them. No, a year for each book. Oh, please, no, not a year <laughs> for three of them. I wish, I wish I could do that. It would be wonderful. <laughs> do you have? Do you like work to a word count each day, or how do you set your writing goals? Um, I've tried all sorts of things. I've tried doing the word count thing, but as soon as I have a word count that I have to get to, my brain just freezes. So what I typically like to do is I'll work on, um, scenes. I'll do it by scenes. I'll say, okay, now I'm working on this scene. Let's see if I can get all the way through this scene today. Um, and that's what I do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I see that you've, you've written quite a lot of short stories as well, haven't you? Are you still doing short stories? Um, I have not written one in quite a while, although I have a, an idea or two for a couple. Um, we've had a lot of construction in our neighborhood for, on this block that I live on for seven years, there has been continuous construction of one thing or another. So I have lots of ideas of how to kill off contractors and, <laughs> <laughs> and disputes about how loud things are. So I have a couple of short stories I would like to do. I just haven't been able to find the time. Yeah. And also you served as the as a president of the Sisters of Crime chapter in your area for, for well, at least one year and helped co-chair a conference. So you've also been busy with networking with other writers. That's right. I served on the board, board of Sisters in Crime LA for six years, and one of those years was as the president. And um, currently, actually, I am the We Love Libraries coordinator for Sisters in Crime National. So that's my my new thing that I'm doing um, with them. So that basically means that it, 
Sisters in Crime National gives a grant to U.S. libraries, including those that are in the U.S. territories and um, commonwealths, of $1,000. We give one each month, and I um, basically am the person who notifies the library that they've been chosen and coordinate the um, presentation to them. Great. That's that's great. Um, So we're coming to the end of our time together. Can you tell us where can readers find you online? Do you like to engage with your readers online? And if so, where can they reach out to you? Um, sure. My primary thing is my website, um, www.authorsybiljohnson.com. So that's author, S-Y-B-I-L, johnson.com. Um, from there, you can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, and also, I blog every other Wednesday on Type M for Murder with a bunch of other mystery authors. That's, yes, I had a look at that blog today. It actually looks fun. There's a lot of good stuff on that um, Type M for Murder blog, isn't there? Yeah, there's, we, have, we are fairly diverse in the kinds of books that we write and where we live. There's you know, Canadian authors, U.S. authors, a couple of people who live in Scotland, um, so we all have different sort of viewpoints and we're all at different places in our writing. I'm probably one of the newer writers on the group. So we all have different viewpoints of what's going on um, in writing, in, in, in the writing world. Yeah, it's really fun. Well, Sybil, look, thank you so much for making your time available to us today. It's been fantastic to talk to you. We'll look forward to the next Aurora Mystery with some anticipation and all the very best with your writing. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website, That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.